0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month, and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. you also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a bonus episode on Ted Lasso, and we have another one in the works on Why the Last Man. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com picture nextpictureshow.
1: And Tosh Robinson,
0: uh, Genevieve is off anteing up on love, uh, but she'll be back for our next pairing. Finally, uh, in her place, we brought in Master Paul Schraderologist Vikram Murti. Uh, Vikram was a super intern at the Dissolve, and he is now a an excellent freelance film writer out of New York. Hi, Vikram. How's it going? It's great. Good to have you on. Finally. Thank you so much. So, is is everybody here up for a game of blackjack?
1: Okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah I I, I'm sure.
0: Why not? Do you know how to count cards?
1: Uh,
0: No. no. Nope. Nah. I can't say I do. Then <laughs> Sorry. You should, then you should stay away from blackjack.
1: But you just invited us to play.
0: Well, well, well the house always wins, and this is my house. I don't want to take your money.
1: Okay. That's a nice sentiment, Scott, but we're all adults here. And you don't tell me what to do. Deal me a hand.
0: Okay. Here we go. Dealer shows a five. Tasha, you've got 18, and I've got a five showing. So I assume you're going to hold?
1: Uh, Hit me
0: this is outrageous there's only three cards that could help you the ace the two or the three or uh, otherwise you go bust i
1: told you you don't tell me what to do hit me
0: oh wow a three 21 that's great for you but we're sending a terrible message to listeners about optimal gambling strategy no one hits on an 18 and they definitely don't hit on an 18 when it, when the dealer's showing a five
1: yeah what can i say i had a hunch
0: how so you, you couldn't have been counting cards because this
1: is a fresh deck I mean, this is a bit. And you did go on and on about how the house always wins and you don't want to take our money. So it seemed like hitting on the 18 would be the dramatic thing to do.
0: Okay, that's clever. All right, let's just see what kind of cards I get. Okay, I add a king underneath, which gives me a 15. And because the dealer always has to hit on any hand 16 or lower, I need to take another card. Boom, a miracle six for the push. What an unlikely series of events. You couldn't script it any better than that.
1: Scott, you literally scripted it. You probably could have scripted it better than that.
0: Well, well, the house is definitely feeling like a loser tonight. Keith, why don't you tell our auditory gamblers about what they're betting on this week?
3: Well, Scott, we're rolling the dice on a pair of movies about the seedy world of professional gamblers. The new Paul Schrader movie, The Card Counter, stars Oscar Isaac as an ex-military interrogator who has taken up a second life as a gambler. Things take a potentially violent turn when a young man from his past seeks his help in a revenge plot against a colonel. Their uneasy pact recalls the surrogate father and son in Paul Thomas Anderson's debut feature, Hard Eight. When a professional gambler, played by Philip Baker Hall, befriends a down-on-his-luck young man, played by John C. Riley, the two share a master-student bond with each other that masks the true nature of their unlikely friendship. In both films, those secrets lead to violent outcomes. So this week, we'll work on the casino floor
0: of PTA's Hard Eight with Hall, Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, Samuel L. Jackson, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Then next week, we'll plunge further into the shadows with another of Paul Schrader's lonely obsessives. Please join us.
3: It's always good to me
1: took care of him?
3: John is a very old friend.
1: I think he's pretty adorable the way he follows you around and
2: looks up to you. Hello.
1: Hi. I don't do anything that I don't want to
2: do. You understand? It says you remember, Jimmy. Yeah!
0: Friend lives up there. I saw you playing crap over the original Doom. Bet the heart ate for a thousand and it for 2. Stupid man. He thinks you don't like him. I don't. I know some things. Atlantic city you walk around like you Mr. Cool, Mr. Wisdom, but you're not. You're just some old hood. Please don't in me. The first shot of Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie is a slow tracking shot following its unseen hero, Sydney, as he approaches a young man huddled in a ball outside a diner. He offers the young man named John a cup of coffee and a cigarette. When the two get to talking, and John offers a down-on-his-luck story about trying to go to Vegas to win $6,000 to bury his mother, Sydney shows him even greater generosity, offering him a ride back to Vegas and a chance to win the money back. Never ignore a man's courtesy, says Sidney. But John naturally questions the man's courtesy. What does this guy want? Because if he's angling for sex, John makes it clear that he knows three types of karate. Jujitsu, Aikido, and regular karate. Later in the film, when he extends some kindness to Clementine, a Reno cocktail waitress and moonlighting prostitute played by Gwyneth Paltrow, she also braces herself for the sexual favors he surely wants in return. But he's insulted by the very thought of it. He would told her earlier at the casino that she didn't have to flirt with him for tips like she did all the other guys in the lounge. But in the worlds of Las Vegas and Reno, where everything's for sale and everyone's looking for an angle, who can blame John and Clementine for suspecting this avuncular benefactor might have a hidden agenda. What is it that Sidney wants anyway? And is he really so different from the other degenerates who compulsively order up Kino cards or press their slim advantage at the craps tables? Anderson lets Sidney's true motivation dangle for as long as possible, long enough to where it scarcely matters to John, whose naivete leads him to accept Sidney's largesse without questioning it ever again. John isn't wrong to do so either. By the time Sidney's dark past in Atlantic City finally catches up to him, We discover why he feels inclined to help this confused young man, but we can also see the genuine love that he's developed for him too. Sidney's path to redemption has become about more than aiding the son of a man he killed. Rather, it's also about the development of a meaningful relationship in a life that's otherwise deeply empty and haunted. It's one thing to drop a few coins in the slots on vacation in Vegas or Reno, but making the casino your home feels purgatorial. As the poker expression goes, it's a hard way to make an easy living. Hardy was a precocious debut for its director, whose love for filmmakers like Robert Altman and Martin Scorsese was evident in the casting of Philip Baker Hall, the Nixon of Altman's secret honor, as Sidney, and the Scorsese-like bravado of his camerawork, and his deployment of John Bryan and Michael Penn's unusual ambient score. It also set the table for a career full of movies about the complicated relationships between fathers and sons, or in this case, surrogate fathers and sons. Burt Reynolds and Mark Wahlberg in Boogie Nights, Tom Cruise and Jason Robards in Magnolia, Daniel Day-Lewis in The Orphan Boy and There Will Be Blood. It also was the beginning of his own stock company, with John C. Reilly as John, Philip Seymour Hoffman as a gambler who taunts Sidney at the craps tables, Melora Walters in a blink annual missit role as a companion to Samuel L. Jackson's character, and contributions by cinematographer Robert Elswit and the aforementioned Brian and Penn. Hard Eight is also a statement of purpose for Anderson, signaling a connection to Hollywood's past, particularly the new Hollywood of the 1970s, and a love for his actors. Casting someone like Philip Baker Hall as the lead in Heart 8 sends a signal similar to Quentin Tarantino giving a big part to Robert Forrester and Jackie Brown a year later. In both cases, young filmmakers seized the opportunity to reintroduce a performer that audiences might recognize from character roles. Hall had played, for example, the cranky librarian uh, to memorable effect on Seinfeld, but hadn't gotten the recognition they deserve. And here, Hall's presence validates the hard miles of experience that Anderson was too young to have, but understands exceptionally well. We'll talk more about it after the break.
3: I don't
2: wait for old people. I don't wait for old people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's see another. Here we go. 8-Easy-8 eight eight, right on a point of 8, better back run. Okay, I'm gonna light a cigarette now, old-timer. See, the thing is, I like you, and I'm gonna light a cigarette, I'm gonna let you have this time to place your bet before I finish lighting a cigarette. And then when I finish lighting, I'm just gonna roll and fuck you. (laughs) You're laughing at that? I just said fuck you to the man, Jesus Christ. The way you look, I think you know what I'm saying, old-timer, I think you do. Jesus Christ, why don't you have some fun? Fun, fun.
0: Yeah. So what is your history with Heart 8 and how does it look in the year 2021? Who wants to take this one
3: first? I can say I got in on the ground floor with, with this Paul Thomas Anderson guy uh, because you know I wasn't, didn't see it at a festival or anything, but I saw it in its first run, which I think I also wrote a review on it based on that because we, we would review things just when they played Madison in the early days of the AV Club. And it was Kind of, it almost seemed like it was pre—at least in this market—predestined not to be a hit because they were alternating it with some other movie. It was only playing like every other showing at the one screen it was playing in Madison. But I loved it. I—I I, I thought this is this is someone to watch. Someone I'm going to be keeping an eye on, and and uh, uh, you know, obviously. I was quite familiar with with Paltrow and Jackson at that point, but not the, the two leads of the film either. And and and, and the, you know everything from the performances to the way uh, Anderson handled the camera uh, was uh, you know just just a hit a sweet spot for me. And I I hadn't seen it in a few years. I I, I ended up, it's a movie I ended up like watching a little bit of like it is on Pluto a lot. So you know, if, if if we land on that scene of the the steadicam shot, just gliding like like an angel uh, through through the floor of the casino, uh, I can't really I can't really turn that off for a while. Uh, uh, but you know, it, it's uh, it held up it held up beautifully for me watching it today. Vikram, what about yourself?
2: I remember watching it for the first time either before seeing The Master for the first time, or either before seeing Inherent Vice. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, I I can't remember which one. It was one of the it, I it was like the only one I hadn't seen for a very long time, and I think one of his newer releases prompted me to to check it out. So it was I want to say about 5 or 6 years ago that I that I saw it for the first time, and I think uh my initial takeaway from it was that it's a very good debut. I was like, "Oh, this is This is like, has sort of rough around the edges of a first film, but like, it's obviously very promising. I'm a huge Phil Baker Hall fan generally. I think he's kind of amazing in the movie, and whatever problems I have with it, like, either script wise, uh, it's mainly script wise that I have some problems with it, but you know, it's for a guy who's like, what, 23? I don't know how old he was when he made it, but Mm -hmm. it's something extremely obscenely young. It's really strong work, obviously, and especially what comes through here is his facility with actors. Like the performance he he elicits is pretty amazing.
3: I imagine it looks different going back to it after a lot of uh, other Paul Thomas Anderson films versus like building up to what came later. It it kind of it feels a little bit analogous to Bottle Rocket in the Wes Anderson filmography. Although I feel like this is, you know, uh, 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 stylistically he's a little. I think Paul Thomas Anderson arrives a little more fully formed than Wes Anderson. I feel like maybe Anderson needed more of a budget to really do the full immersive uh, Wes Anderson experience, whereas Paul Thomas Anderson could, could show up at a, at a rundown casino and 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 uh, do what he what he does. But yeah, it's it, they're definitely promising starts, and I, I, I'm still very fond of both those films. What
0: do you think, Tasha?
1: I mean, I think what uh, Keith was just saying about it being a little odd to see this film after other PT Anderson films later. I saw this movie. I missed it when it first came out. I looped back to it after Magnolia came out. I was uh, kind of a big fan of Magnolia. I'd already seen Boogie Nights when it came out. And watching this film after those two films is just a strange experience, you know, because they're both such sprawling scene films with so many different characters and, and elements feeding into each other, all of these little sidelines and plot lines. And Heart 8 just seems like a, an arrow aimed at a target. It's just so stripped down compared to either of those movies. So, you know, it gave me kind of a, are we sure this is the same guy? <laughs> did, did I pick up a W.S. Anderson movie uh, by accident?
0: <laughs> it's not like, it's not like <laughs> one of his movies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I am I am somewhat joking. But okay. uh, that said, I mean, I really like this film a lot. You know, just a very different way from from some of those other movies. Certainly in a different way from, from Magnolia, which I've kind of soured on uh, the more I learned about it. The more I learned about how he wrote it. But revisiting this film is just enjoyable. You know, it's just so so stripped down and sleek, so well put together. The the acting jobs are are so terrific in it. But it's also, you know, it's dated in such an interesting way because so many of these people have have become such bigger stars than they were. Like Samuel L. Jackson was was post pulp fiction at this time. He was a a very well known name. But it almost feels like this is him dialing back to like earlier in his career to a meaningful and an impact heavy but like smaller role. And we're seeing him before he became one of those iconic stars that kind of has the one thing that he does, the one thing that you order him up for. And, of course, just seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman pop out of nowhere. When he showed up, uh, my husband and I both uh, for just a second thought it, he was Jesse Plemons. Mm-hmm. Um, he he looks—he looked back then a, a fair bit like Jesse Plemons looks right now. And we both had to kind of take a, a beat for like, no, this this was too long ago. It was just, you know, it's, it's nice to seeing him pop up again in random places. But seeing John C. Riley playing a role like this also just feels very surprising these days. You know, he's, he's played other similar, not very bright, sad sex. That's, that's kind of his stock in trade. But here it feels kind of new and fresh. It feels pre polished. It feels like before that became his, his major stock in trade. And there's just something. Disarming, I think here about about John and the specific type of John C. Riley character that John C. Riley is playing here. I think it's it's really spectacular to see uh, P.T. Anderson just kind of stretching his wings a little bit with some of these long takes, with some of these kind of you know different methods of of both visual storytelling and narrative storytelling. Uh, but I think this film not only really holds up; it, it feels like one of those really cool little time capsules that surprises you every time you revisit it.
0: I was one of the ones like Keith who did see it theatrically when it came out. So this was my first experience with Anderson. And I, I don't even think I had much of a sense of the buzz around this movie either. And I don't even, maybe there wasn't that, even that much of it because of, of the problems that he was having with his distributor. You know, it was not given that much of a release. I think maybe I was probably more intrigued by the actors. I, I was excited to see Philip Baker Hall and then, and then the rest of the cast, had a few names i i certainly knew and i vividly remember where i was when i saw it who i saw it with it was one of those types of experiences because i think from the very first shot you know you're watching something special or someone behind the camera who is doing something really ambitious and you know i think you can to a degree i mean i my my whole theory of Paul Thomas Anderson is that that he didn't find himself completely as a director until Punch-Drunk Love. I feel like that was kind of I think there are like two phases of the career, of uh his career and you can't, and that's kind of the dividing point where when he stopped being imitative I guess of other filmmakers and then and became much more fully himself and much more fully who who he is now with Punch-Drunk Love. But I really loved revisiting this film. I think it holds up Extremely well. I think there's a genuine amount of care that he takes with these characters and with these actors. I mean, it, it, that that is, as Vikram was saying, you know, one of the real strengths of this movie is is how well he works with actors and how much he gives them to do. And you can you, you can feel how much affection he has both for the these characters that he's written and also for the actors who who play them. And he gives them the, the kind of time and the, and the space to really, you know, make a mark while also writing I think a pretty taut satisfying genre film Uh, you know the the strategy which I want to ask you about in a second here of kind of withholding Sidney's motivation from the beginning I think it really pays off well once we finally do learn about why he's uh, so generous to John but um, yeah so actually in fact let's just go ahead and shift to that question I mean what do do you think of that strategy of, 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 of kind of withholding that information from the audience for as long as the film does.
1: I think it's key to the movie. I I think it's a lot of what makes the story here is not really knowing who your main character is. And I think that's going to come up, uh, especially for me, just in a big way uh, in our next episode when we talk about the card counter, because it approaches a very similar story in the opposite kind of way. And I think it really hurts the the narrative. I found myself partway into this just wondering, like, why am I so mesmerized by this uh, when it's it's doing exactly some of the things that I don't particularly like in the card counter? And I think it's just because everybody loves a mystery, you know? There's a sense of depth to this character. There's there's a sense of uh, age and wisdom and experience and knowledge to Sydney, but you never doubt that he has an intent. You never doubt that he wants something. And the fact that so many characters on screen theorize about what he wants, usually aggressively, usually trying to to fend off what they think he wants. And then he's gentle and sometimes contemptuous in in pushing back. No, that's that's not what I want it just keeps the question at the forefront of your mind of, okay, so what is he about? You know, it's, it's the big mystery that kind of keeps this movie chugging along through it's, you know, it's it's got a lot of interesting little bits of business and and set pieces and character work, but the story itself, if you think about it, is pretty low key and loping. I, I think a lot of what pulls you through all of it, what holds it all together, is just kind of that central question. Like, who is this and what is he doing and why
0: i think it also in specific ways brings out some good moments from the other characters too i'm thinking specifically of gwyneth paltrow there's a moment where she seems absolutely certain that he's going to take advantage of her that 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 she's in this incredibly vulnerable place in that that this is that this endgame that is that would be her expectation i suppose of any of of most men she would come across in in Reno is that he's going to take advantage of of her in this terrible s- spot that she's in, and and you can see that kind of dread on her face, and I, I think that I think it's it's interesting to hold on that, and I think it's also interesting to allow enough time to pass to where you have an accumulation of genuine feeling for John, because you know at the beginning it becomes it is really transactional. You feel he feel he he has to. He has to do what he has to do, you know, and we understand why he has to. Do. He feels this this compulsion to seek some kind of a debt, I guess, that he needs, that he owes John, that John doesn't know about. But I think there ends up being so much more to that relationship, um, which gets te- gets tested, of course, in in very dramatic ways in the in the third act.
2: I'm gonna slightly, I guess, go against the grain here. I am not a huge fan of the reveal of why Sydney has been so kind of paternal to John it's funny because I rewatched the movie yesterday after not having seen it in like seven years. And I remembered the first half of that movie very well. And then I didn't really remember the second half of the movie. And there's a moment when he's talking to Gwyneth Paltrow, when Philip Baker Hall is talking to Gwyneth Paltrow and she asks him, Oh, do you, do you have a family of your own? And he goes, Oh yeah, I have a, I'm divorced and I have two kids and I haven't seen them in a while. And to me, that was all the information I really needed about why he was so kind of close to these two sort of wayward souls that he meets, and how like he feels really protective of them, and because like it's like they're almost his surrogate kids, and and he feels sort of kind of protective. And they they're obviously very lost and not really certain of their place in the world or how they're going to move forward. And it feels very abrupt, I think, narratively when Samuel Jackson's like, "Oh, I knew what happened in Atlantic City. You killed his father." And then, you know, it literalizes the whole idea of when he goes like, oh, I feel he's like a son to me. And especially when Samuel Jackson later tells him he'll never be his father. I feel like these things are kind of heavy handed or or at least they're executed heavy handedly, at least for my taste, Mm -hmm. when I don't think the film really needed it. Honestly, I think that especially because these characters are lived in by the performances that they're filling in sort of the general, I don't want to say sketchiness, but the kind of uncertainty. Of who they are in the page, like they feel very lived in, in the performances. I don't know if we really need, or at least I didn't really need, more explanation than that. And I think that my attention kind of starts to waver when everything starts becoming really explained.
3: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I feel like it works; it all works. But you're, but I had actually forgotten there was a big reveal like that in this film. And when we got to it, you know, I I, I do think Sydney is almost as interesting of a character, maybe more interesting of a character if he's just doing it because he's right. like, kind of a lost soul fishing, you know, trying to rescue other people from from the fate that to which he succumbed. But but to me, the whole film, the works, the film works even with that in there.
1: Yeah, I just I can't accept I can't easily accept a a character in fiction who is purely altruistic. <laughs> and it's just, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to fit within human nature and it doesn't fit very well into just kind of the boundaries of, of narrative storytelling. Your character who's the gay best friend or, you know, the, the magical black man or the hooker with a heart of gold, like all of these archetypes that kind of exist, the manic pixie dream girl, even the character that only exists to benefit Uh, the main character, and to pull them out of whatever they're in and help them along their way. Those characters are rarely interesting. And they rarely seem like they have any source in reality. They're, They're kind of a lazy wish fulfillment for unhappy screenwriters, as far as I'm concerned. And the fact that there is a reason here, you just don't get to know what it is for a long time, just feels so much more realistic to how most people work. You know, most people want something for themselves, even if it's a smaller petty thing, even if it's a, a grandiose and maybe even altruistic thing, there's still something usually kind of selfish down at the bottom of a, a lot of what we do. And if this character just sailed through the whole movie as kind of their magical fairy godfather, I would have wondered if I was watching a, a secret fantasy. Uh,
0: yeah. See, my my problem, I, I really think it's necessary for him to be more than just, you know, a lonely guy, you know, who's who's kind of screwed up in his life with his family or something or is, is, is no longer married, doesn't see his kids, et cetera. I think that it's important that he is like a condemned man, that he that he has done things that are vile, that are wrong. And I think that, that's going to end up coming into play, of course, uh, when we bring in the card counter. But, like, you know, I think that if we just look at his life in isolation, it is a fairly grim and meaningless one. I mean, there's not really – to me, like, there's – one of the kind of critical small moments in the movie – is when he is just playing Kino, you know, just in the middle of that lounge, you know, and, and he kind of stops a conversation so he can hear the numbers. And there's just something so, when he is actually out there gambling, there's something so sad and compulsive and joyless about that experience for him. And I think that this is his opportunity, of course, to have something in his life that is a little bit more meaningful, to do something that may not bring him happiness, but might actually at least, you know, send some young people, uh, on their way or or give them some assistance. So I think it's important that it, that there be this other element to the movie. I mean, it kind of, you know, I mean, you may argue that it kind of just brings it into more of a, a stock in a more stock thriller territory because, because then you have this, then you have Samuel Jackson's character, Knowing the secret and then and then then you have all the kind of violence that results from that But but I think I think that element of his character is important It's not I don't think it's enough for him to simply be a solitary man.
2: I feel like I I should clarify at least a little bit I I don't disagree With the idea that a purely altruistic character or just someone who's like a like a savior Is is kind of a dull character. I agree with that. I just think that Enough of his backstory and his dark past is at least like hinted throughout in the way he acts and the way he kind of moves through the casino and especially the scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman, the kind of like darkness that falls behind Philip Baker Hall's eyes. I think a lot of that stuff is already there. And I also think that I hear what you guys are saying, but I just, I I really think that like, especially when that reveal happens, the narrative becomes very tidy in a way that it can only, I mean, obviously it can only end in one place, but I think, I think it becomes a little too tidy in the, in the way that it becomes like a runaway train to one inevitable conclusion. And I I definitely was more intrigued by it when it was unclear about why he was doing these things, but there was enough there in the both the setting and the performances and kind of the way he's engaging with these people where there's, you can kind of sort of fill in yourself about maybe why he's doing these things. And I also, I also just think that like we, I think in, in life, if there's no truly altruistic people you know if, if there's a core selfishness and a lot of the reasons why we do things i think one of the things that's interesting about life that is you know kind of evoked in stories is that we all we don't know everything about people that we never really know why people are doing the things they're doing uh and i kind of i guess i kind of balk when i see movies that are very clear about motives and intentions mm. uh which i think is something that in like later paul Thomas anderson films he's kind of more obtuse about it in a way that I appreciate.
0: So you'd have been comfortable if no if if no shoe had ever dropped.
2: As much as I yes, but as much as I say that now, I have a hard time imagining what how the movie would wrap up yeah. regardless. So yeah, I, I understand yeah. that there had to be some sort of I, I get that, but I was definitely like a, I completely forgot that that was the the thing. I remember the hostage very well, and mm-hmm. I guess I didn't remember really anything that happened after that. So I forgot there was this whole section where it was like. Oh, you killed this guy's father. That's why he's like your son. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah all right. <laughs> too mu- a little too much. <laughs>
1: yeah. I want to kind of loop back to something Scott said that really surprised me. The the idea that Sidney is leading this kind of uh, sad and pathetic life that we should be judging him for. I'm very curious if other people read it that way, because that that definitely wasn't the impression that I got. I feel like he's coded as potentially a lonely man but certainly somebody who seems to have it all figured out who can afford to be a man of leisure like unlike so many of the people around him in Reno he's not he's not showing off he's not throwing money away to impress people it seems but he's also not dumb like many of the other characters he comes across as intelligent and capable and controlled he has an old world class to him he is dignified. Yeah, he sits at the table and plays Kino. But to me, that scene just felt like, you know, he's got the, the time and money uh, to throw away on these little activities if he feels like it. Until towards the end of the movie, we don't really have a sense for, I mean, we see how he's living. We, we see the space that he's living in which I take to be one of the hotel rooms that he's uh, sort of scammed for himself. But it's palatial. He may he may ricochet around in it because he's alone. But, you know, he's not living in the street. He's not desperately trying to pull dollar to dollar. He's not sweating over the tables. I mean, to me, he just codes like an old world gentleman with plenty of money who's doing what he wants to do.
3: Yeah, I mean, but at the same time I think there's there's a sadness to it. I mean, he definitely seems to be living in a some kind of postscript existence. Uh where his real life uh which he seemed which even without the big reveal we we understand he is he has messed up in some uh way that he finds impossible to repair. Uh that's over and this is this is what he's doing now. And the fact that he's doing something constructive, you know, if he weren't doing something constructive with that, we we wouldn't have a movie, but I I I don't think there's there there's kind of a there's a weary you know, uh, melancholy romanticism to it. Um, but I don't, I, I don't necessarily think he's someone who's, as the kids say today, living his best life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that take. I think there's a, a far distance, though, from uh, a melancholy retiree and somebody living a, a painful and pathetic existence, which is more of what I heard Scott saying.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't,
2: I don't, I don't get a lot of joy out of, out of Sydney in this movie. I, what can I say? I would say that I fall somewhere in the middle. I do agree with Tasha that he has it figured out. Like he has. Like I, I think that if you've been in spaces like casinos or bars or kind of uh, dark places where vice is at least normalized, you're going to find people who can handle it pretty well. And I think what's interesting about Sydney is he can handle it pretty well. He's not a gambling addict. He's not one of these people who's kind of like life is falling apart. He's got his sort of existence under control, but it also is a kind of purgatorial state. It is sort of like, you know, I wouldn't be here. He is kind of like a nomad in many ways. He's kind of just sort of like veering in between Reno and Vegas and You'd get the sense he wouldn't be here if things had gone a little better back East, but in this, in the place that he's in, he's not like off the deep end. He just likes being around people who are, are less than reputable and uh, in spaces that could be considered less than reputable, but uh, he's got his corner of that space pretty locked down
0: yeah uh and like i said in the keynote you know it, it's it's a hard way to make it easy living you know and he does <laughs> so, i think he certainly knows how to he's a grinder he knows how to kind of get through i mean he's actually if you think talk about other poker movies it's uh uh or other gambling movies it's or it's, it's a little he's a little bit like an older version of john Turturro and uh and rounders you know somebody who's just, who just knows how to you know grind out a living you know who, who isn't who isn't taking any big shots who just knows what angles to play and what angles to, to what games to avoid and and uh occasionally plays a little kino and that's about it um but i you know it doesn't seem like it doesn't again it doesn't seem to me like the, the most uh joyful or, or fulfilling e- existence for him um but maybe you know maybe that's something he doesn't feel he deserves you should
2: you should try kino <laughs> yeah
0: well maybe uh, it's true that's true i do like to i i yes uh, i i had i i could say i've been to vegas several times have not tried Keno. so maybe that that would uh put put my is vaca- it basically
3: like just table tabletop lottery or something i never i never played Kino i think so either. yeah B- yeah basically i think mm-hmm. so we,
0: we've talked quite a bit about sydney and, and philip baker hall's uh excellent performance as well we should that's that's central to the movie but there's a lot of other familiar faces in this Uh, movie uh, in roles big and small. I was curious if anything, any one of those performances really stood out for you.
2: I think the obvious one is Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think one of the great small performances of Mm -hmm. that decade. And, you know, he sort of, I I do like that even as far back then, PTA would very is very much like we're going to cede just about five minutes of the movie to him almost entirely and uh, just give him his little showcase. Mm Mm-hmm he proves yet again why he was one of the best actors of his generation just yeah, by playing kind of an asshole. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and also, and also a very important contrast to Sydney in terms of like the type of person that you might meet in a casino. You know, I mean, you're going to meet kind of louts like that sometimes. And the way, the way that the two of them act against each other in that scene uh, really is exciting. What about you, Tasha? What, any st- standouts for you?
1: Um, honestly, Samuel L. Jackson does uh, a fair bit for me. I I feel like as I kind of said earlier, he's he's become one of those icons that kind of plays the same type of role over and over because people say, you know, what we need in this role is is a, a Samuel L. Jackson. And here he's not playing that far from that familiar type. Like he's, he's playing somebody smug and slick and larger than life. Somebody who's aware of the size of his personality, who uses it like a weapon. But there are a lot of little grace notes to it that I just really like. I mean, from the moment that he sits down at, at Sydney's table in that bar and starts going on about women, he's clearly, it's just, it's so clear. That that character is used to operating with a different class of person and probably a different age of person. That Sydney is just not a part of the world that he inhabits, and it does not occur to him that he's offending Sydney. It doesn't occur to him, you know, to, to try to learn anything about him uh, before saying provocative things. At the same time, you you can see where he gets his pride pricked by Sydney, assuming that he works in a, a parking lot, and. Like everything that falls out towards the end of the movie just kind of comes from what seems to be a fairly small interaction between two people who just really early on don't like each other. I think that could be a very basic role. I think it could be very simple, unnuanced role, and I think the racial dynamics of it complicate things. But I think Samuel L. Jackson plays that role in such a way that you're not going to sympathize with him by the end of the movie. You're not going to uh, like feel like he got a raw deal out of it given what he does. But you can at least see his side of the story. You can see how different that movie looks if it's the movie about that character. And Sydney is somebody he encounters along the way, as opposed to being Sydney's movie and him having a small role in it.
2: I would agree.
3: <laughs> uh, I mean we've we've done all this talking, but we haven't gotten to John C. Riley. I feel like maybe is a given. But you know, it really was. I know I'd seen him in things before, but you know, it's definitely the first time he he left out at me. It's certainly it the first time I saw him in, in a role uh this this sizable and you know it's 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 really it's really strong work and it's, it, it's a, in some ways it's the john c Riley type we we've we'll see again but it you know seen as kind of a naive young man who you know who really is a puppy dog in this movie uh it really kind of seals just how uh inexperienced uh john is compared to uh sydney uh jimmy
2: clementine uh, everyone else in the world
0: yeah i mean yeah. Oh, go ahead
2: i i was going to say that i think that there's a two specific moments that really kind of bring out the best in John C. Riley, And one is when he's sitting in the back seat with, yeah. with <laughs> Phil Vigor Hall. And he's like, he's like, you know, he's going from this place of, you know, intense sort of like skepticism and contempt. And he's looking around, and he goes, this is a nice ride. And he's goes, pull over for a second. And it's just this hard cut to him getting in the front seat, which I think <laughs> is just extremely funny. And then the matchbook story. And it's especially just, again, like it's a directorial touch, but the quick quickest flashback mm-hmm. of just his pants exploding and he like starts patting it free it's it's great
0: yeah that got a big laugh i remember laughing very hard at that in the theater when i saw it the, the other moment for me with him is is when he's explaining to clementine the cable there why he has the other the, the tv and the, the whole <laughs>
3: this is a t- tiny television which would give you no pleasure watching the it cable uh, i
0: know it's so it's so good please don't tell anyone about the anyway <laughs> I, I think I, again i think that gives a, a nice kind of you know, kind of other quality of the film because it it is a heavy film in other respects, and it's it's kind of important to have Riley bring lightness to it, and also to, for him to have like a childlike quality. Uh, and we see that type of character carried through in other Anderson films as well. Uh, thinking, of course, of of um, Adam Sandler and, and Punch Drunk Love, very kind of childlike and innocent in his, in his way, uh, even though some uh, um, very grown up things are happening to him.
1: One that said, three. I mean, he he also injects just a straight up sense of horror into this movie. I really kind of both hate and love the hotel room scene where Sidney takes one look at, at what he's walked into and just immediately understands that, you know, these two wacky kids that he tried to put together for like a nice little life together have just screwed everything up royally. Mm-hmm. And then the more John talks, the more it's clear that he doesn't, understand what's gone wrong or what he's done wrong, but he keeps lying. He keeps uh, making the, the situation worse. He acts violently when the situation changes and then doesn't seem to understand why that's a bad thing. We, we keep learning of more and more messed up stuff that he's done that he hasn't confessed to Sydney and that whole sequence i mean it unfolds like a coen brothers m- moment it it unfolds s- maybe something a little like coen brothers meets uh, david mamet just in terms of the dialogue stacking and stacking and stacking as more and more like bad aspects of things are revealed and i feel like his just dumbness you know his his naivete yes but also his lack of imagination and his complete un- lack of understanding of the situation in that moment, it's just kind of horrifying, you know. It's it's an of mice and men, like you just killed a woman and you don't understand what you've done, uh, kind of moment where you know you're not going to get through to him. And watching Sydney. Try to fix this situation, but you also kind of have to feel like he's he's maybe wondering if he should just walk away throughout all of this. I think it's fascinating because even at that point, you don't know why he's there. You don't know why he's sticking with us, why he feels a duty to these two people when he really should like walk in that door, look at the situation and, and turn around and walk off forever. Yeah.
3: You know, yeah, that's one thing I really like about Hall's performance too is, you know, he establishes early on, uh, Cindy's authority, his dignity, his ability to command, uh, the room, but he doesn't, he definitely plays him falling apart really well. Like, he, you're right, he does, you can, you can read his mind that he wouldn't mind walking out of the situation. And his moment, his, he's really quite, which Jeremy certainly I and mean, he, he does not try to hide how intimidated and, and frightened he is, uh, and you know, literally begging for his life. It, it gives that character just that much more dimension, and and uh, uh, yeah, it's just another re-
2: reason why I like the performance so much. Yeah, uh, Phil Baker Hall is a great, just like kind of a a great moment in the hotel scene that made me laugh really hard. Which is, you know, one of the many lies that John C. Riley tells is like, oh, uh, his wife called, and it's like, wait, how did the wife get involved with this? And then he goes. She goes. Yeah, you know, I, I, she'll give up the money. And he just goes. Did you? <laughs> did you threaten to kill him if she didn't? And he goes. No, no, no. And then <laughs> just Philip Baker has this great moment. where He goes. The cops are definitely coming here. <laughs> like you. you, you like, they are definitely coming here. Like what are you not understanding about this? And I, that, I. I. That killed me. I was like, okay, that's that's a really great moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of an interesting contrast too. I mean, if you're talking about his young contemporaries i mean this is not a scene this is the like the type of mess that harvey Keitel's character in pulp fiction is called to kind of clean up and that's his job right and he's completely assured in doing that and leading everyone through the paces but but sydney is more uncertain so it gives that it does give that scene an edge uh that that uh is a little bit different um and also yeah just generally right we talked i talked about you know scorsese and and altman being influences i i think that paul thomas anderson may have seen house of games a time or two Mm. (laughs) as well before making this um i actually just wanted to get into that issue too before we go into feedback and ask you about the style of the film because you know paul thomas anderson is a very stylistic director i was curious what you thought of the style of this movie and about the film's general evocation of vegas and reno casinos
3: well it feels like for the first three films Thomas Henderson was like mixing Scorsese and Altman in, in various, you know, different, different proportions each time. And he was really good at it. I think you're right. He doesn't come into his own as a director until, until later, but I think he could have stayed in this zone and made a really fine career. You know, changing up the degree to which he's he's drawing on one director or the other. I'm glad he didn't, but I think th- this and um Bookie Nights especially, and Magnolia being the most ambitious and some way, in some ways uh, top heavy of of uh, those films, uh, show that you know he, he knew what he was doing. He, he drew all those influences really well.
0: Yeah, um, uh, for sure. Uh, the, you know, and I think there, there's a limitation here in terms of. Budget Maybe that he you know, I think it, it, it seems like it was probably something he, he had to shoot on a on uh something of a shoestring But what I think is very interesting about heart eight is that it is so far from the kind of corporatized Casinos that you, you usually go to if you're in the on the Las Vegas strip I mean those you know, you're not seeing the types of casinos that Philip Baker Hall Haunts in this movie. I mean, you know, it, you know those would be way way off the strip and in Reno certainly you know, uh, uh, it's it's all very grimy and moody, and
3: um, Re- Reno's very off the strip, I believe.
0: Re- yes, Reno is it, <laughs> so far out. You really you don't want to walk to Reno from Vegas. You want to find <laughs> another way to get there.
2: I have kind of I have chafed against some of uh, the stylistic, I guess, choices in Paul Thomas Anderson's first three films uh, in the past. I do think that there is a there is a neediness to some of the camera movements, especially more so, I think, in Boogie Nights than anything else. I have softened on that position yeah. in, in, in recent years, especially because knowing that how rare it is for like a 24 or 27 year old to get this kind of resources to make these kind of movies. And I, I fervently believe that Boogie Nights is probably the greatest Goodfellas ripoff, ever, mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. on a, in a visual sense. But I do think here, especially with Hard Eight, I I think there's nothing wrong with proving yourself a little bit. And I think the ways he does that, even if it, they are derivative, are are uh, pretty special. I especially like the shot that he stole from Something Wild, uh, which is the 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 gun in the sewer. Uh, it's a it's a kind of a I guess I think it's in slow uh, it's slow down. And it he kinda it, the gun hits the hits the the street and goes into the sewer, which is uh, what Melanie Griffith does.
0: Yeah. Demi, um, another massive influence on it.
2: Absolutely. Oh uh... no uh, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I do think the There is kind of a manic energy that I at least appreciated with uh Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And what I what I definitely noticed here, especially the second viewing, was how like elongated the scenes are where there's like a lot of dialogue and the dialogue is delivered at a measured pace and i definitely feel like scenes go on a little longer than i expect them to with the paul thomas henderson movie mm-hmm. especially i'm thinking of the scene when uh phil baker hall goes to the hotel room and he's outside the door and him and john c Riley go through like four different rounds of like you're not going to freak out. And He's like, "Open open the door, man." And it's like <laughs> and it goes like it goes on way longer than you expect. And the same thing with the Samuel Jackson, him and Samuel Jackson in the car when he's like kind of they're like, "Oh, you know, how you know, everything's fine." And it like you're just like, "Alright, where is this It's like this is this is taking a long time to get to the point." And I I do kind of appreciate abstractly or at least theoretically how much he's willing to hold the audience's patience just by like, you know, watch these people listen to them and like and and, kind of sit with this, mm-hmm. but I do think that is something that it feels very much like it feels very much like a, a a first director choice that I think he eventually irons out, even you know in the next movie.
1: I feel like there's a lot of David Mammoth in some of the the dialogue in some of these scenes, exactly what you're talking about the the sequence of the door, the sequence in the car. I thought of Mammoth in both cases and in both cases because there's the, just that kind of escalation around circling the point i kept thinking of glengarry glenn ross and uh the scene where alan arkin's character and ed harris's character are talking about maybe robbing their employer or maybe they're speaking about robbing their employer are we speaking (laughs) or talking here like that negotiation the negotiation in the car where samuel l jackson is like it's not that i'm saying that i will rat you out unless i get some of this money, it's that uh, you know he he kind of it escalates and it it mutates and it changes as we're having a conversation that isn't the conversation we're going to be having, uh, but we're not going to that conversation yet. He's not taking a direct route to the fireworks factory. And I feel like a lot of this movie, like it's, its long years are are aimed at moving at the pace of Sydney himself. You know, it, we're conveying this uh, older, quiet gentleman who's living an older, quiet life, and he doesn't rush through things. He gets pulled into situations where he feels he has to rush through things. But when the movie is focused on him in that bar or even just like moving across a parking lot towards a, a diner door it's very slow and deliberate because the the movie itself is echoing who he is and and i find that pretty fascinating but that said this time around the the directorial choice that caught me most was just how often anderson controls what you what you see and makes you want to see things that you don't get to see yet like the most obvious and striking example is when Sydney first comes into that hotel room and he doesn't let you see the hotel room. He's, he lets you see Sydney's reaction. And then they have, he and John have one of those long dialogues you're talking about that go on longer than you would have thought. That's just, what am I seeing? I'm not going to tell you what you're seeing yet because we, we, you don't get to understand that yet. All right. Well, What, what, what happened? Well, I'm not going to tell you that yet. And just and on and on. And this whole time, if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, he, he killed Clementine. Like what else could this possibly be? And then one of them, and then Sydney says, you know, who is he? And you're like, okay, something else is going on here. And that just keeps unfolding and folding, unfolding in, in each case with each new iteration, each new piece of information you learn, you're not taking any of it in visually And that's echoed in littler ways throughout the movie where you lose characters off screen uh, occasionally for a moment at a time. In that long shot that we keep talking about, Sidney moves across the frame until he's out of frame and the camera moves on without him for a while. And then eventually he circles back into frame. There's a bunch of stuff like that throughout the movie where Anderson deliberately loses sight of someone or something. In order to control what you're seeing, in order to make you aware of what you're not seeing, and it is kind of flashy, it is kind of conscious, it is kind of film school, but I still love it.
0: Yeah, and I think, and I think you know that Anderson understands that in the instances that you and, the, and Vikram cite in, in the in the scene with Samuel L. Jackson in the car and then the hotel room scene, that all of that conversation can still build tension because that question, we have that question lingering in our mind, like what is going on or what's about to happen. And so just you know, the, the the length of those conversations ends up building uh, tension rather than diminishing it because we're, we're really curious about what is going to be at the end of the whole thing. I have one last question to ask very lightning round question before we get to feedback. Paul Thomas Anderson insisted very badly wanted this film to be called Sydney. Uh, the, the film, uh the company the, the the powers that be uh wanted to be called heart eight uh who, who is right is it should it be called sydney or do you like the title heart eight
3: he he was so into it that he insists on calling it sydney on the audio commentary for this <laughs> and for Frogman uh for boogie nights and probably subsequent audio commentaries as, as well uh, i think heart eight's a better title uh, sorry 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 paul thomas anderson
1: I'm not sorry, Sydney is a terrible title. People want terrible it
3: was, no it's terrible it evokes <laughs> it evokes
1: australia like it it evokes uh, some kind of stock pencil neck geek hollywood character it It tells you nothing about the movie hard eight not only evokes the the gambling aspect but it just you know it has a it for lack of a better word, it has a harder sound to it 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 conveys something difficult like a a difficult choice or a a difficult moment it evokes curiosity sydney is just i don't know like why why not call this movie john or clementine they're also major characters like what does a person's name as a movie title tell you about anything
2: uh it's funny you say that because i I believe the distributors problem one of the problems with the title was that they thought audiences would be confused and think the movie's about australia um (laughs) I, I personally um I don't love Sydney. I think "Heartache" sounds better as a title, as mm-hmm. Tasha just just said. But I think both are kind of like, all right, that's a that's a name for a movie. They they both don't inspire a lot in me either way. I like "Heartache" as a title. "Heartache" comes up
0: in the movie a couple of times too, so so it, it fits. You know, um, I, I'm afraid that though that this this conversation, this part of the conversation is gonna if. if paul thomas anderson to sub- subscribe to the next picture show i think <laughs> i think that i think that subscription will uh, elapse uh this, but, is, this uh, is where so, he's so, just uh, gonna uh,
1: hang up the the uh, theoretical right. phone <laughs> in rage i i know that you're actively trying to transition us out scott but I, I gotta ask we super skipped over gwyneth paltrow when we're talking about you know memorable characters we and did. memorable moments we have super super not brought her up yes is that because other people uh don't don't hugely love that character or that uh that acting job
3: no i, I think she's really good in this movie. yeah uh, it's, a, I think, it's a kind of a weird thing, i think, she's generally casting, really good, I think but,
0: but yeah what do you what do you what do you think Tash? is
3: it weird in retrospect is, is that is that is that it or, I thought or it was is weird it at weird at the time
1: hmm.
0: yeah what do you think tasha
1: i i don't i mean i don't I love the character
0: it's oh, the, char- the character that bothers you more than the performance <laughs>
1: No, I, I'm trying to separate the character from the performance, but the, the, the performance for me, I don't know, it, it, it just feels a little too overplayed. For me, it feels a little too exaggerated, almost satirical, almost. And maybe it's just because the character is written as, as such a stock character in a way. Like, I don't, I don't love her plot function as uh, the the dumb woman who causes trouble, and the happily ever after is that two kind of dumb people go off into the the sunset together.
3: Yeah, I don't love that we it just doesn't seem particularly interested in whether or not what the, the this post you know this post marital decision to take one last question mark uh, job is something that's going to be a problem in their marriage or if it's fixing is anything. That's all kind of left dangling. Uh, as well and that may be a matter of, of, of that character being a little as you say less less well defined than than she could be
0: yeah it's it's maybe the the, the least strong character in the movie but it interesting you know still there's an effort there it's not it's it's a little bit above stock uh and uh I think paltrow does uh, the best that she can with that role
1: yeah I think ultimately that character maybe we Maybe we need uh, less of her, or maybe we just need to know more about her because she's just kind of this this empty collection of uh, cliches and sadness and then big plot moving decisions. but ultimately, I don't have nearly as much of an idea of, of who she is as a character.
0: It's interesting that you bring up a minor character because uh, that is the subject of a very good feedback question that we have coming up, so please stay tuned for feedback. Now it's time for feedback where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. This week, we have a very interesting "Anything else in the world of film prompt from listener Sean. Tasha, do you want to read this one for us?
1: Sure. Sean writes, I finally got around to watching The Farewell, which I liked quite a bit. Afterward, I found myself really wanting to know more about the character of Ico. To recap, she's the fiance of How- How, who is in turn Billy's cousin and Nai Nai's other grandchild. She's a big part of the plot because she agrees to travel to China to marry Hao Hao. They've been dating for three months. She's acting as cover so everyone can say goodbye to Nai, Nai. She does this in spite of not speaking the language and with no apparent family or friends in tow. So after watching this film, I really wanted to know what Eiko's deal was. Does she have family around? How's her relationship with them? How does she feel about Hao Hao? It's not the point of the film, but it did strike me as odd. This got me to wondering: Do you have any minor characters who stuck with you like this, or who you just wanted to know more about? So many, right?
3: Yeah, the first one that came to mind is uh, one who I think is too major a character to really count, but relative to what we were just talking about, which is Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in Charlie Wilson's War. Uh, which to me, it's like you just start over with that movie and make it about that character, which is I think it's, it's oh, a much a more more compelling uh, film. But I've actually I think it's a, t- a tendency that kids had, or at least I had, because I remember as a kid, I was really – I always wondered what happened at the, in the opening moments of Star Wars. There's a a silver droid that looks just like C3PO who like appears in one shot and wanders off to you know does was whatever but but you know I was always wonder what happened to that guy they made an action figure of him you know does he have as much of a right to to a story as, as C3PO uh, but when we got this in, the one that another like recent thing that that occurred to me was how much I loved uh, Joe Don Baker in in The Natural which i rewatched watched recently he's basically playing Babe Ruth. He's playing a character called the Whammer, who's like this hard-living, um, you know, baseball star. Who he shows up, he plays his part in the film, and he wanders off. But boy, man, if someone had built a a, a made a Babe Ruth biopic with Joe Don Baker, uh, that was you know full of full of you know meanness and hard edges uh, around the same time, that that would have been that would have been a great biopic or at least a great performance. Uh, so you know, I, I don't think we'll ever get a the Whammer spinoff of of uh, of the Natural, <laughs> but but you know, if 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 there were and we could find today's uh, Joe Don Baker, or maybe, you know, D.H., you know, uh, the Joe Don Baker we have. It worked in The Irishman, right? So let's just do that uh, and have him kind of uh, doing his best to wave a baseball around uh, and and then looking hugely unnatural. Uh, but good movie, though, The Irishman. Tasha, how about you?
1: You know, I had a real problem with this question, and I, I kind of had to think through why. I mean, I, I've seen probably a thousand films where I was like the – the lead woman here is a complete cipher. Like, who is she, and and why does she care about this person? Especially if she's you know a gorgeous twenty two year old actress, and the uh, the male lead is a schlubby forty year old man. But like looking back on it, uh, most of those films, it just feels like first of all, those, those characters aren't very memorable. And second of all, I don't know that it would improve the film if we knew more about them. Like, it would improve the individual character, but it would be kind of peripheral to the story. And then I started looking up, you know, uh, some minor characters that people wanted to know more about and more than half of the ones that end up on uh, internet lists are char- characters that, like, to me, knowing very little about them is the entire point. If you look at Hi- Harvey Keitel as the wolf in Pulp Fiction or uh, the the gas station attendant that refuses to bet in No Country for Old Men, these are very minor characters that you know very little about. And you, you kind of love that. That makes the character, like... Do we want to know the life story of the gas station attendant from No Country for Old Men? Would that in any way improve that acting job? So I, like, I feel like sometimes characters like that really bug me during the movie. But in, in terms of the actual question of like, do they stick with you? Maybe not so much. Off the top of my head, just a couple that, that came to mind really randomly were Richard E. Grant in uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. such a standout in a film that I mostly hated Mm -hmm. uh, is is one of the only competent villains in maybe the entire Star Wars saga. You know, the only one who isn't uh, apparently motivated by capital E evil and nothing else. He's just uh, kind of this really organized, really sharp, really smart person who does all the right things. And we know nothing about him. Now, granted, that may mean that there's uh, a an eighty issue comic book series or uh, hmm. four novels about him somewhere that I haven't read.
3: Just speaking of Pulp Fiction, the one I it's funny you should bring that up. I one I, I almost named was Julia Sweeney's character in Pulp Fiction, the oh. the, the, ju- the junkyard employee who with whom the Wolf has some kind of really chummy flirtatious relationship. Well, what, what's her deal? <laughs> she, about that.
1: she feels like I mean, sometimes you get a minor character that you know nothing about, and you feel like something was definitely left on the cutting room floor.
3: Yeah. Probably. That that character
1: definitely feels like there may be a what it was more there at some point.
0: And and I mean, if you read, if you read, uh, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novel, that is exactly, I I would not be surprised if there was a completely, a a complete story that he had written for that character that just basically informed his (laughs) the the, what little of the film that she is in because he did that that is what that book is all about is just kind of like. Taking bits from the film and even characters are not not in the film or barely in the film, and and uh, going off in some other direction with them. It's kind of exciting. Uh, What about you, Vikram?
2: I tend to uh, lean toward Tasha's feelings about this. I think that one of the great things about small characters is that they are small and they kind of leave indelible an indelible feeling on the film without taking up. taking up the whole thing. But I do think that uh, to bring it back to someone we talked about in this episode, I think Jonathan Demme movies are sort of packed to the brim with uh, characters that make such a strong impression that you'd like to see them even for another scene. That would be kind of nice um, to bring it back to something wild. Once again, something that just came immediately to mind is uh, the Steve Scales's gas station attendant character who uh, sells uh, Jeff Daniels basically like over just basically upcharges him and sells him a bunch of stuff from the gas station in order to give him uh, a disguise and he's such a charming cheerful uh, uh, really really uh, compelling character that we only see for one scene and he owns that scene but as much as maybe it would detract from the rest of the film I, I wouldn't mind seeing him for at least another one to just see what he's up to maybe doing the same thing to another character kind of just cheerfully selling a customer more things than they actually need
0: yeah oh gosh for that for the reason that that immediate, what immediately came to mind for me there was uh, stephen prince in taxi driver the guy who sells uh, the guns to uh travis bickle uh, and of course, there's a whole movie, a documentary, a wonderful documentary about Stephen Prince called American Boy, where he kind of goes off and tells all these incredible stories, a couple of which are just lifted straight up for Reservoir Dogs, by the way. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that would be a character you'd want to see a whole film about. Not necessarily a f- film that would be as good or better than Taxi Driver, but definitely an interesting kind of type of character, somebody who's uh, selling uh, selling guns and drugs or whatever people need on in the black market. I thought, uh, All that's very compelling. Um, the one that came to mind though is uh, for me was a much more, uh, audience friendly example, I should say. And, uh, this is one that I think our, our, our friend and, and super listener, uh, Mike D'Angelo uh, kind of ag- agrees with me on, which is, or maybe the, is, uh, you know, there was a, this comedy made this Canadian comedy made in 2013. Uh, I saw it when I saw it, it was called the F word. It was released as what if. Oh. In uh, in in this country, it's a pretty solid romantic comedy. I I, I like it. Uh, it has two relationships in it. The the main relationship uh, is between Daniel Radcliffe and Zoe Kazan. Both fine actors, both quite charming. Here as the typical kind of couple who have a lot of little obstacles in their relationship. Mostly they're friends, right? The, the F word, in the original title, the F F and fr- it means friend. Uh, and they have to kind of that, that that's kind of a large obstacle that those characters have to have to uh, climb but but the second relationship in the movie is between adam driver and mackenzie davis <laughs> and those two are absolutely electric together and this was a very early glimpse at least for me of both of these actors who are who are two of my favorites you know and mackenzie davis would go on to be an a, you know one of the really great Characters in the series *Halt and Catch Fire*, which you should see if you haven't seen that already, Uh, and of course Adam Driver is Adam Driver. But but both of them, uh, they have this real, you know, in contrast to the main characters, they have this real kind of crazy energy about them. And and because you know, maybe, and I think it kind of it really makes you want to follow those two. As as charming as is Kazan and Radcliffe are in the movie, they are a much more familiar rom com hype you know kind of kind of quirky characters who who are, are kind of adorable and you want to see together i mean that's a those are all characters we know but 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 mackenzie davis and adam driver there's an edge to that relationship and a, and a spontaneity and humor to it that just you know shocks the movie to life every time they're on the screen so uh i guess that, that was the example that came to mind first for me
1: i found myself looking at a lot of directors that i know that Make very busy movies that are full of very colorful characters. Like I have kind of ran down the list of like Coen Brothers movies and Wes Anderson movies and uh, the Quentin Tarantino movies, a few others, just like these movies are just packed to the brim with characters who could be like get bigger callouts but do they necessarily need them within the film that they're in is the big question and apart from maybe wishing we knew more about agatha in the grand budapest hotel who feels like kind of a cipher there there aren't a lot of these characters that i feel like don't work exactly as they are i mean all of the characters in uh, burn after reading are are colorful and interesting and shallowly drawn. And I feel like there could be more of them. But again, I don't know if it would benefit the the actual story that they're telling there. So, you know, I, I don't know. I guess one of my big questions here would be, did anybody watch the Jesus rolls? Oh, no. Uh,
0: no. oh, God almighty. Uh, yeah, no. but I, there's no way I mean, just the very idea of following that character a and then and then B having it have the, the cones having absolutely nothing to do with it was like, No, this is not right. <laughs> I do not want anything to do with this.
1: So on some level, I feel like that, you know, that's an extremely memorable character from uh, The Big Lebowski, a a character that's a standout that everyone remembers, a character that you think would be extremely colorful on the page. And the idea of a a movie breaking him out in his own story, I I don't know anybody who, who watched it. I don't know anybody who wrote about it particularly significantly. Like maybe that movie is a sign that we don't necessarily need more, particularly of the characters we like.
3: Man, that cast just keeps going. I look at the cast list now, and it's it's like, uh, it's just stacked with great actors. Like you know, even you know. Down to the, the smaller roles uh, as well. So, you know, maybe it's great. Maybe we should go, maybe we should do that next. Let's do a bonus episode <laughs> of <on> Jesus roles.
1: <laughs> I, I am pretty curious about it. It just did just kind of blow me by. And it is one of those things that I get a lot these days with digital releases of like, for all I know, that's the best movie coming out this year. And there's just no time and I'll never know.
0: I think that's something that, that, that like, Patreon supporters kind of like the benefactors want to put you through the ringer sometimes want want you to go through a little bit of a <laughs> torment for that on their behalf and maybe that will be the maybe that'll be the unexpected Jesus rolls bonus episode uh, but until that happens uh, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response in a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, which also follows a solitary man into dark casino halls, but on a much different path to redemption. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, spotify or your podcatcher of choice if you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra next picture show written and recorded content come support us on patreon at patreon.com slash next picture show find us at next picture show.net and follow us on twitter at next picture pod so you'll always know when a new episode drops until then i'm going to ask you with the heart and sincerity that i have please do not put a bullet in me